chapter uh, 2. Now, you might notice that Paul's letter to Titus isn't very long. There's one, two, three chapters there, and we're going to read the middle part. And let us set the stage for our time of learning from God's word. The word of God is from the mind and the heart of God, the logos. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You're probably thinking, why is he reading this? Well, I'm not a very dignified old man, so I guess this means that we need to listen carefully to the heart of the matter, don't you think? Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Aha! There's the lesson. It isn't necessarily an ancient message about old ideas. It's about giving the enemy ammunition against our Lord. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare those things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So... The focus word that you want to take is the blessed hope. And the idea of reading that entire passage to you is not so much to teach you some archaic old ideas about how men and women should be, although it would be good to take it to heart. In principle, wouldn't you agree? In principle, what we're being challenged to do is to be distinguishable from the world of the flesh. In other words, there's a world out there that's pretty ungodly, and you can see it every time you turn on your TV or open up your internet browser, right? There's a world out there that's pretty upside down anymore that encourages and permits things that don't align with what the Bible teaches us about how we should live. Now, 
That isn't to say that we still have bond servants or slaves, because obviously we don't, but you can look at that as a statement about how to treat your employer. And we certainly don't want women to feel oppressed in their household, but at the same time, we do see that this passage is encouraging us to have a balanced relationship in our homes, where the roles serve to glorify God as they are done in harmony with each other and with God. And so we have to take a certain amount of, of what I like to call sanctified imagination and apply it to the passage in order to understand that what God is asking us to do, what the Apostle Paul is suggesting, is that we need to be easily distinguished from the people of the world, that is, the ungodly people. We need to be recognized as not like that. And the truth of the matter is, is that what's gone wrong for a lot of Christians over the years is that they haven't been different. They don't separate themselves from the ways of the world, and no one can really tell that they are different. They go to work and they say the same things their co-workers who don't know the Lord say. They go to their public places with their friends and behave as just as ungodly as the friends do. They, in other words, it's not about righteousness for the sake of righteousness. It's not about trying to behave in a way that is in alignment with what you just read in the scripture so that you can appear to be godly. It's about loving the Lord so much that you don't want to disappoint him. You don't want to let him down. And that's the difference, you see. We don't try to be holier than thou. That doesn't work anyway. People can see right through that. People can tell that you're just faking it and hoping you'll make it. But what they do know is real about you is striving. When they see the sweat on their brow, they know that someone is working hard. When they see the strain and the effort that goes into trying to live in a way that honors God, they don't see it as an effort of uh, vain emptiness. It's an effort that's devoted in the sake of love. See, there are people here today, for example, who showed up for love of their children. They were willing to make sacrifice to be here today because they love their children and their grandchildren. There are people that we will do things for because we love them and we don't feel that it's a burden. It's a joy. And it gives us a great sense of satisfaction to serve for love's sake. And this is what the author of this letter is really driving at, is if you love the Lord, act like it. Act like it. And why should you act like it? Well, not because you're trying to convince anyone least of all the Lord, but because you just can't help it. That's why I said a little while ago, you know, we worship God like we just can't help it. Now, you folks that have known me for several years, you, you know I've said that, I say that all the time, don't I, right? That's, that's a pretty common phrase I use, and I hope that it sinks in, that, that the best way to come to church on Sunday morning is planning to worship God like you just can't help it. Oh, sure, I have other things to do on Sunday morning. I have other things to do at different times of the week, but I can't help it. I just want to worship God. And it's more fulfilling and more meaningful when I worship God in the company of others who have the same desire to worship God like they just can't help it. Now, 
Let's talk about this phrase from the passage that we read called the blessed hope. This is our theme today. Now, next week's service on Christmas Eve morning at 10 a.m. next week on Christmas Eve, we're going to have a real family-oriented worship. I mean, like, super family-oriented. Some of us are thinking we might even say, if you want to wear your decent and dignified pajamas that you bought for your family Christmas <laughs> gathering. I don't know, would you wear pajamas to church? I don't know, some people are saying no. Some of you shouldn't. <laughs> some of you should not wear your sleeping clothes to church. But if you have some nice pajamas that you want to wear, I think it'll be all right. But the thing is, is we're trying to really make it family-oriented. And so we're not going to talk about hard things quite the same way that I'm about to. Because I want to share something with you now that is a vital part of the Advent story that is our blessed hope. And it's something that is rather adult in a sense because it talks about what some of us would consider scary things. But we're going to talk about the fact that Advent is a season of anticipation. And as we light each candle each week, we're seeing an increase of the light. I've left the uh, menorah up this week. Last week, we lit it and left it up for Hanukkah because we wanted to show our solidarity with the people of Israel. And the reason that's so important is because they are family. They have the same father we have, the same heavenly father. And while we diverge on the matter of who the Messiah is, they are family. And right now, their family is going through a really hard time. And so we want to be with them in solidarity through prayer. And the menorah is there just to remind us. But the menorah is also a reminder of the importance of light in the darkness. And so the Advent candles remind us that God once said that he would send the light of the world, and eventually it came to pass. And we're celebrating that every year at Christmas time. God made a promise, and God fulfilled that promise and the person of Jesus Christ. And we're here because we believe that same Jesus saves us through his sacrificial death, through his uh, uh, supernatural uh, work of salvation and through his resurrection and ascension to heaven, we know that he's alive today and in our midst in his Holy Spirit. But we also anticipate or we have an Advent season of anticipation that he will come again. The Bible tells us explicitly that Christ will return. Jesus said he would return and he meant in the physical form as real as the first time, albeit in glory and great authority and power. And this is what we call the second coming. Now, in the second coming, we are again anticipating uh, this Advent season. And in a very real sense, I am convinced personally, and I think most of the people who have studied the word and, and who have been people of faith for a long time, I think there's many of us who agree that, that the current Advent season is getting pretty close to having all the candles lit in a sense that we can see Christ's second coming as 
being imminent. That is to say, it's going to happen. We just don't know when. And yet there's a sense that we have lit three of the candles and we're just one candle or so away from his second coming. And I think you can see that by watching the news and, and, and observing the world through your biblical Judeo-Christian worldview. And this is the reason we're talking today about the second coming. Because next week we're going to celebrate the things that make Christmas a joy. We got a little taste of it today. Next week we'll be more devoted to that. But today I think it's important for us to recognize that Christ is coming again and God has a plan for the dispensation of God's ultimate design. And dispensation is a word we use in religious speak that really just means that, that it's God's orderly dispensing of specific events and outcomes. And in the sense that dispensationalism is a form of conversation that doctrinally being, refers to a specific sort of pass that God would give to the people of the church. And their pass, that is to say, they're excusing from the certain tribulations that are guaranteed in scripture to come is something that God dispenses for the sake of the church. Well, let me put it to you this way to save time. I personally share with our founder of our tradition, John Wesley, a view that there is definitely coming a rapture and a return of Jesus Christ. Those are facts that the scripture, if you believe the Bible, then you got to believe there's a rapture and a return of Jesus. The thing that a lot of us find ourselves debating about in religious uh, and biblical scholarship is when the rapture comes. And honestly, I think people spend way too much time fiddling around with that topic. I, I, it makes for great book sales. We saw that back in the 90s, huh? Um, it makes for great movies. But in reality, there's nothing in Scripture that explicitly tells us because it's too vaguely referenced for us to know for sure that there is going to be a removal of all the Christian people before really bad things happen. Well, I don't know. How bad does it have to get for you? If you live in certain parts of the world, it's already bad enough. Wouldn't you agree? And if it hasn't gotten bad here, then count your blessings and thank Jesus every day and kiss your loved ones. Because as our brothers and sisters in Israel can tell you, that can change in a second. My point is, is that it's a lazy kind of Christianity to pine for a day when the Lord's going to remove you so you never have to suffer. No, that's not how it works. Even our Lord Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane praying that the cup could pass him and then accepted that it had to be. Now, if it's that way for our Lord Jesus, certainly we can accept that it's going to be like that for us too. The reality of life is, is that sin has a certain power in the world right now. And we have a certain call to live like we are above that, not 
better than that. We, we still sin. We still fall short of the glory of God. But we need to live like we know that this is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not the natural order that God created, but an unnatural order that sin created in a sort of corruption of the things God created. And suddenly you realize that the only way that you could possibly get rid of the corruption, and you all might remember that in the past I've referenced corruption in the form of rust. I like to think of corruption as rust because that better explains what we mean in the scriptural sense about corruption. It's the breakdown of something that once was solid and that breakdown ultimately results in a failure or a collapse. You can't let heavily used bridges decay into rust or something terrible is going to happen. In the same way, corruption or sin has afflicted the world so that there are places all over the world where sin has allowed a degree of corruption that has produced failure. And God says, if only you had maintained Things and mitigated the corruption. So now we're getting close to what we read in Titus, which is that until Christ returns, we're in the business of mitigating corruption. Again, using the bridge analogy, if you're a person who lives in towns where there are bridges, you know, I, I've grown up in, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They call it the city of bridges. You know, I've lived in the Louisville metropolitan area for a big chunk of my life. And, you know, those bridges are always being repaired, it seems. And there's always a lane closure or something. And guess what? Ask an engineer why. And they'll tell you because bridges require constant maintenance or they fail. And most of us might be inconvenienced by the maintenance, but we're grateful the bridge didn't fall out from under us while we were crossing it. And so this is how we view sin and the life of righteousness. We're not perfect, but if we keep scraping away the corruption and painting it and maintaining it and filling in the places that need to be shored up, in the same sense as we find weakness in our own lives and corruption in our own lives that separates us from God and godly behavior, when we see ourselves not representing Christ but looking an awful lot like the rusty, corrupt world around us, then... What right have we to expect him to rescue us and snatch us away in something called the rapture? Now, the truth is, is we have no right to it, but it's been given to us as a gift. It is a gift of grace, which means unmerited favor, and it means that you have, because of God's grace, been saved from catastrophic failure. But that doesn't mean you won't suffer some corruption or the result of corruption in the meantime. When the Lord recognizes that the world is now at the brink of complete corruption and destruction, he's going to return. And at that moment, whether it comes at the end of whatever tribulation you anticipate or not, the one thing can be for us certain is that when he comes, he will shout and we will hear him. And if you read in uh, Paul's letter to uh, Timothy, 
For example, you'll see, even as Jesus says, that in twinkling of an eye, which is way faster than you think, the dead will be raised, and then those who are alive in Christ will be transformed. And we will, at that point, have been separated from the ultimate destruction that is inevitable because of the corruption of sin. And it is at that time the Lord judges and the Lord condemns what needs condemning. Stick with that uh, analogy, just one more step. When the bridge is no longer safe because it is completely corrupt, what do we do? We condemn it and we tear it down. And the Lord says in the Bible that that is what's ahead. Now the question is, which one of the Advent candles are we on right now? Are we on the fourth candle? Is the Lord's return that close? No one can say for sure. But spend some time, especially as adult Christians, thinking about how you would like for him to find you. What you'd like him to find you doing or saying. Will he recognize you in the crowd of sinners? <laughs> will you stand out? Or will you look just like them? And if so, why? Well, the good news is, is all you have to do to come out on the right side of all of this is turn to the Lord in prayer and repentance. Accept Christ as your only hope of salvation, your blessed hope even. And then ask him to renew your spirit and make you a work in progress where corruption is being mitigated by more than just your willpower. In fact, entirely because of his, uh, I guess we'll call it his public works agent, the Holy Spirit, who's going to fix you and repair you, even if it takes a long time. Invite that process to begin. And don't judge yourself according to what you see other people at this church or other churches doing. Don't worry about any of that. This is between you and the Lord. We're just here as a family of God to be united in our common goal, to worship like we just can't help it, and to uplift and encourage each other along the way. And it doesn't matter where you are on the way. Nobody's keeping score. <laughs> I can't be pointing fingers at you without recognizing the other four fingers that are pointing back at me, right? You know? And so let us be people who are humble and gracious with one another, long-suffering and full of mercy because we need it. And the best way to help us get it is to give it away. Amen? Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, wherever it has appeared because of your spirit. We rejoice and thank you. And whatever is from this broken vessel, then just erase it from memory. Lord, glorify yourself and change people according to your perfect will, we pray. Amen. Amen.